Hello, and welcome back to the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. I'm your host, Francis Johnson, and I'm so glad you've joined us as we continue our conversation about economic equality. When it comes to creating more equitable access to economic opportunities like buying a house or getting a loan to start a small business, financial technology innovations are moving the needle faster than almost anything else. Joining me today to talk about fintech and the role it plays in economic equality are Ryan Christiansen and Steve Smith. Ryan Christiansen is executive director of the Stena Center for Financial Technology at the University of Utah. In this role, Ryan directs and coordinates the labs, venture fund, incubator, and student programs at the center. He previously served as senior vice president of data access partnerships at MasterCard. An impassioned advocate for expanding fintech, Ryan has been instrumental in the foundation of the Financial Data Exchange and frequently shares his insights with many other fintech industry groups and initiatives. Steve Smith is one of the co-founders and creators of the Stena Foundation. He believes that financial inclusion and quality education can be a catalyst for change and can break the chains of generational poverty to lift local economies. Steve is from the Camas Valley in eastern Utah and is the son of a schoolteacher. He attended the University of Utah and worked full-time as a student in order to make his college education attainable. With the support of his wife and family, Steve became a successful serial entrepreneur in Utah's thriving technology sector. Prior to the company being acquired by MasterCard, Steve was chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Finicity, an industry innovation platform providing consumer-permissioned financial data and insights. As a result, he is a pioneer in the fields of financial data and inclusion. In addition to his work with the Stena Foundation, Steve is also currently Chief Engagement Officer, Global Open Banking for MasterCard. Ryan and Steve, thank you so much for joining me here today. Great to be with you, Francis. Looking forward to the discussion. Steve, I'm hoping you can get us started today by diving in a little bit more to your background. I know we talked about a little bit of it in the intro here, but sharing your background and what drew you to this space of financial technology. Yeah, technology was always super interesting to me, Francis. So I, having grown up here in the state, I attended the University of Utah. And at the same time, I was working for a a tech startup here in Salt Lake City. So we focused mainly in building connectivity solutions for laptop computers and advancing that kind of mobile communications pre-smartphone, kind of in the late 80s and up through the mid-90s. At the same time, I attended the uh, University of Utah Business School and specifically in in, uh, the finance program. So I got a degree in finance. And so this combination of making the, the entire world mobile in the work that I was doing there from a tech perspective and the industry there and the work in the finance program. I took some banking classes. I took some real estate classes. I you know, did all of the standard accounting and finance classes, corporate finance and whatever. So I got a really great foundation together with the company that I was uh, working with that was growing rapidly. So that just kind of moved me into a space where after creating this mobile environment where computers were now truly on the go, The real question for me is, can you unlock data 
And can you kind of democratize data so that, you know, it's available wherever you are? Now that we can take the hardware with us wherever we go, can we have true access to the data anywhere? And specifically, I was interested in how does that apply to the financial world where typically unlocking that data and either set at the bank or set on a hard drive and you're, you know, on the kitchen computer or whatever, whatever, is there a way to actually unlock that data and put it in the hands of consumers and allow them to be much smarter decision makers from a financial perspective? Really, it was about helping them have less debt and do a better job of cash flow management and all of the pieces that went along with that. And that's what drew me into the industry. And of course, the internet just was highlighted significantly at the time. And it was about, you know, kind of this new ubiquitous network and in a way that made that industry very, very interesting. But at that time, a couple of decades ago, we weren't using the word fintech. We were using a lot of other words to describe the kind of work we were doing. But it's been interesting to watch the technology grow and change. And uh, it's been awesome to be in the true fintech space for you know, the better part of two decades and to watch that grow, and especially here in the state of Utah. Well, Steve, you alluded to this a little bit, but I'm hoping you can draw the bridge for us here between these technology innovations and creating an impact for underrepresented groups, people who are historically shut out of economic equality and economic advancement. What is the relationship between financial technology and really supporting this mission of financial and economic inclusion? Well, financial and economic inclusion are very important, two two different terms, but economic inclusion generally means that I am in a position where I'm not disadvantaged from an economic perspective. Often, access to financial tools, services in the banking system, and even credit, right, serve as blockers for people or hurdles for people to really get access to the kinds of tools and solutions that they need. In the past, it was always kind of a, if you're the wealthiest of wealthy, you could have access to a whole group of advisors and they would do a bunch of things from a financial perspective, or you could certainly get access to all the credit you wanted. Or if you were the largest of the large businesses, then you largely had the same thing from a business perspective. And so small and medium-sized businesses didn't have access to the same kinds of tools data and insight that much larger businesses had access to enter, you know, full data democratization and the ability for fintechs to come in on top of platforms like the Finisty platform and actually build out all kinds of new products and solutions, including new ways to think about credit. Whereas before, maybe someone was disenfranchised with the current underwriting models. Now you can look at new underwriting models that were tied to transactions in a bank account, for example. And additional insights and solutions that would allow people that traditionally did not have the tools to enhance their lives in the same way that, you know, as I said, the wealthiest of wealthy or the biggest of big had access to. And I think that that's replete throughout the industry. When you take a look at the number of products and services available to small and medium-sized businesses now, and and we're talking about the small and medium-sized businesses that make up 70% of the world's economy. So truly important that We distribute value-related products and services to that sector and then allow that sector to be super successful and then continue to do that for consumers so that if they have a phone, if they have an identity, they should be able to get access to a bank account. If they have a bank account and they have an ability to be qualified for credit, 
then they get access to other parts of the economy and solutions that actually are very impactful economically at their core. So that's how we think about financial inclusion and the impact of the entire fintech community on growing the world's economy and really helping people become financially included in a way that is economically impactful. Well, Ryan, I'd like to kick it over to you here for a minute and talk about this fintech landscape, particularly as it relates to Utah. Utah, and I'm I'm sure you have the numbers, I hope you'll be able to share them with us, is home to a large number of financial technology companies and organizations. It really seems to have a unique regulatory and business environment that makes it such a friendly place for these kinds of businesses and allows them to succeed. Talk to us about Utah as really the sort of home, the epicenter of fintech. Yeah, it's a really exciting place here in Utah when you look at it from various different aspects. And I'll start with maybe the universities in Utah. You've got a lot of highly educated people coming out of the university system that have been starting these businesses, whether it's technology businesses, fintech businesses. And there's really been a long history of that in the state of Utah. You can go all the way back to the one of Steve's earlier experiences, I know, at Megahertz to WordPerfect, Novell. So you've got a lot of kind of startup mentality with the educational system, doing a lot of innovation as well that's coming out of the, the higher ed. And that's providing a lot of fuel for what's happening in Utah. And then you take that spirit of entrepreneurialism and look at what it's produced. And just in the last several years, you can see in just the fintech industry for unicorn exits in the fintech space, which is Pretty impressive when you think about the overall size of Utah. I would say we're, we're generally punching above our weight. And that's creating not only future innovators, but also creating capital and, and the networks that help continue to grow the fintech ecosystem. Within the state of Utah, you've also got a very friendly regulatory environment. And you can look to, say, the industrial banking area where we've had a very friendly regulatory space for industrial banks. There's more than two-thirds of the industrial banks in the U.S. are located in Utah, and over 90% of the deposits are located in Utah. And the industrial banks have been an important part of fintechs. Many of them are participating in various ways in fintech, and one particular example would be in the banking as a service or embedded banking, where you're seeing those industrial banks really partner up with the, the fintech apps. So, you know, I would say that when you start thinking about fintech in Utah, it's pretty multifaceted from that government regulatory friendly space. You've got the industry and entrepreneurship, and you've got the educational space that has really been working to create a, a hub for fintech in, in not just the United States, but worldwide. And it seems to me that the Stena Foundation, the Stena Center for Financial Technology are really examples of this innovation in the space that have been really enabled by the environment, the resources, the human capital, money capital that are here in Utah. Steve, talk to us about the center. It recently launched at the University of Utah. What was your vision and what are you hoping to accomplish with this next phase of your own 
journey in fintech? Yeah, so this has actually been the culmination of lots of discussions with thought leaders here in the state of Utah with President Taylor Randall over the last four plus years, starting when he uh, was dean of the business school with the law school at the University of Utah, the engineering school at the University of Utah, and really as a tech entrepreneur and building a company, there was a time, you know, at Finicity when we were, honestly, we were hiring consistently on a weekly basis. And I had the good fortune of starting my educational background in engineering, and then I transferred over to finance. But I always had kind of an engineering brain and uh, applied it in finance. And so it was kind of an easy place for me to sit in this combination of financial technology. But a lot of people, a lot of people come into the industry and they, you know, they've been developers in a completely different sector or they've applied finance or product development in, in a completely different sector. And if you're you're looking to hire people that have context, I mean, the financial industry is, first of all, replete with a lot of regulatory constraints and guardrails. And second, you know, it has to work in, in so many cases at a high level of uptime and a very significant level of information security. And so it's just, it tends to have its own kind of nuances around product development, how how things like mortgages work in the ecosystem or underwriting clients or the credit scoring or how the central bank works or the Fed and how clearing works with bank, how banks work. What about core services providers in banking? How does the banking system work overall? What about payments and the payment rails and the card companies? And, you know, I can go on and on with everything that's out there and the complexity of that market. So you're making it sound so fun. (laughs) <laughs> it's absolutely enormously fun, Francis. So the challenge is how can you bring people into this kind of new world of financial technology that frankly will be a, just a massive area of opportunity for the next decade and a half at least and uh, get them up to speed more quickly. You know, there are certain certificate programs out there in different places, but to our knowledge, the Stena Center for Financial Technology is the first of its kind. We're fortunate to have been able to bring together the School of Law, the School of Business, the School of Engineering, and start building out curriculum that allows students to participate. I mean, I think right now, Ryan, we have 75 students in the minor program. That was the first uh, degree that was a degree-oriented program that was released, right? Yeah, and and I'll add something there. What I think is so important about the Stena Center is intention. So we've had a lot of success, as we've both talked about in the state of Utah around fintech. And and there's some other cities around the world or areas around the country that have had some success. I think what makes it really special here in Utah is truly that intention. So you've got a lot of people like Steve and President Randall, Governor Cox and others that have said, we want Utah to be a epicenter for fintech which is a global phenomenon. We've already got the assets in place. And I think that's what's so special about the the vision of Steve and, and President Randall is they've said, okay, we've got the assets. Now let's have the intention and go build something together that benefits all of fintech. And that's been really exciting to me. And, and Steve's so correct about the fact that it's a very complex marketplace. You can go out and build a lot of really 
cool technology. But in, in this space, it needs to be financial grade technology. It needs to be able to stand up to the cybersecurity, customer privacy, customer protection rules that exist in the U.S. financial system. And it also needs to live up to all the regulatory sets, depending on the type of fintech that you're involved in. That's not an easy thing to do. But if you come with this intention, we can build upon the success we've already seen. And, you know, I like to give this kind of silly example of why the cross-disciplinary effort is so important. And I go back and I say, you know, the banks had several decades to figure out how we could go do this podcast over lunch and, and split the bill. And the best that they had come up with was a check. Now, it took some innovators to come along and say there's a better way and create peer-to-peer payment apps, but they didn't get it completely right out of the box either. You know, the, the customer privacy, some of the cybersecurity and other, and other things weren't exactly where they needed to be. So by combining that regulatory, that engineering, that, that business viewpoint around fintech, that's where we build better products and have more success. Well, Ryan, I'm hoping you can continue on this train of thought and talk to us about the intention of the Stena Center in particular and what approach the center is taking through student programs, through incubating businesses, all the different areas you have where people can be involved and learning at the center. What is the approach that makes it a place where you really feel like you're preparing a generation of fintech leaders who will go into the industry with the intention of creating impact-oriented financial technology. Yeah, well, so first you start with the thesis, and which we've already talked about a little bit, which is this multidisciplinary approach. And on top of that, we put together program areas, and we have four program areas. The first one being academic and next being partnerships or labs, followed by our venture work that we're doing. And then lastly, an annual conference that brings it all together. And I can just hit on a little bit more detail on each of those. So within the the academic space, we've talked a little bit about the fact that we've got a minor right now, that we have over 70 students enrolled in those classes. We've graduated our first set of graduates recently from the, the first year that it was launched. We've got the master's that's being worked on, and then we'll have a undergrad to follow the master's. So really building a, you know, kind of a classical academic program so that we're educating the, the future leaders of fintech. On top of that, we're working on capstone projects to support capstone projects around fintech. So really think about you know, that classical academic program that helps educate these future leaders. If you move to the next programming area, the partnerships and labs, that's where we really start to bring industry in. And that looks like industry coming in with maybe real-world questions, real-world problems, and saying, hey, I'd like to have some research done on a question I have. might be about a regulation. Some of our experience that Steve and I have had is in lending. And there were questions about, you know, how does the Credit Reporting Act apply to our business? Because it didn't fit squarely in the regulation the way it was written 40, 50 years ago. So one of the first things that we undertook was some research to figure out how that regulation applied to us and how it didn't and how we were going to approach the business based on that. So that's one of the areas that 
that we do within the center is we do this type of robust, academic, rigorous research for companies that have questions. We also do labs. So companies can come in and provide access to their data, to their platforms, and have students work on real-world questions that they have. And then those industry partners can work directly with students to help them answer these questions, see some of the work that they're doing. The students get to move out of the textbook and into the real applicability of what they're learning. And then from there, you've got industry partners that can potentially hire right out of those labs and students that are getting that experience of you know, working on systems that they would be working on after they graduate. So that's what we're doing in the partnership and lab space. And then with the venture fund, obviously putting uh, money behind some of these new startups and providing them services that really help them along that founder journey. So they get access to cloud computing services, they get access to legal services, marketing services, incubator space, access to advisors, as well as capital to help fuel their business so that we can take some of these learnings and invest in some of these new companies. And then we finally have our last programming area, which is our annual conference. And that's where we bring all of these things together. So we have leaders in the regulatory space, the industry space, and the academic space that provide content from the stage, if you will, and share their ideas, as well as provide a a place and a space where all these leaders can network and ask each other questions and, and get to know each other a little bit better. Also within that annual conference, we provide a space for these founders that we have funded, their startups. We provide a place for them to demo the products that they've made or to pitch to a venture community so that they can raise additional funds and continue to grow their business. So that's, like I say, where we kind of bring it all together, highlight some of what we've been working on on a year-over-year basis so that we can continue to grow the ecosystem. I think it sounds like in addition to being an interdisciplinary approach, which is so important in this industry in particular, when there are so many factors influencing success, that it's also a very holistic approach, right? We're talking about academic learning. We're talking about hands-on experience. We're talking about industry connections, even when you are a student and really having a front row seat to what's happening right now in the industry, all underpinned by this intention that the center has set Steve, how do you expect the center to impact these economies and really move the needle on this question of inclusion in a financial sense? I think it goes back to the first conversation we had around economic impact, right? So, you know, what's uh, really important for the Stena Foundation is, you know, what are the fundamental building blocks of economic success? and economic mobility, let's call it, that create enduring economic empowerment for individuals. And I think that you always have to wrap in small and medium-sized businesses because they fuel so much of the world's economy. And so I think the center is a great example of bringing academics together with industry, together with philanthropy, Right. So you've got three verticals that sometimes operate independently 
and a center that does best in class and bringing them all together so you have the power of all three focused on this notion that if everyone has access to the financial services industry, they all have an identity, a bank account, an ability to take part in the economy in a meaningful way, that they will not be disenfranchised because of any you know, who they are, what, where they live, but they truly can be underwritten based on ability and propensity to repay. If there is better knowledge and better context for financial data that allows them to use the financial resources they have more effectively, they're going to lift their economic position and therefore their family's economic position and their the next generation is starting at, an, at a higher level. And then we just move that to the next level. This is a multi-decade kind of impact effort. And then if you take a look at this small and medium-sized businesses, already the fintech community has delivered you know, a significant number of meaningful enhancement tools that allow a business, think about this, allow a business to start taking payments from anyone, anywhere. The success of the small and medium-sized business is really important in the world economy for driving economic impact and financial inclusion at a higher level. Think about this. If every small and medium-sized business, to the extent they hire employees, were more successful and able to hire just one more employee next year across the world, what level of economic impact would that have? You start thinking in terms of that, and then you start thinking about, you know, where the center can really play a meaningful role in helping individuals, families, communities, entire nations can lift themselves from the foundation up rather than trying to put Band-Aids on problem sets that are always repeat problem sets, right? So I think that's really foundationally, I think that's where the focus is in fintech and financial services and really democratizing financial inclusion in very meaningful ways. And I'm so glad for this way that you described it, Steve, that we start with a person, their family, their community, their local economy, their state economy, their country economy. I feel like when we look at problems of disenfranchisement, of exclusion from the top down, they just look enormous. And it can be very difficult to feel hopeful that that we can move the needle. And then I think we do end up with, to use your term, these Band-Aid solutions, just trying to plug the holes where we can. But if we look from the bottom up or from the foundation up and say, okay, if I can hire one more person, if one more person can make a wise investment, if one more person can get a college education, now we're talking about generational change. As you look forward into the future of the center, Ryan, three, five, 10 years, is that what you hope the center continues to accomplish? What are your goals as you build this project? Really, it is to create this epicenter of fintech within the state of Utah and do that through cooperation and collaboration. I've known Steve for a little while now, and and Steve's always been a, a big tent kind of person. In working with President Randall here at the University of Utah, he's very much a big tent person. 
So if you look at just say our venture fund, this isn't a venture fund for University of Utah founders. This is a venture fund for all students, alumni, faculty of any Utah higher ed. So really extending that reach through a big tent approach and hopefully at the end having an epicenter of financial technology excellence here in Utah. Steve, how about you as you look ahead into the future? Anything else that you really hope comes out of this? To the center's credit and Ryan and his team, the acceleration of what they've been able to accomplish where we are today, how quickly we've spun up an incubator, how quickly we have, you know, actual degree-based programs, how quickly we have sponsored labs from industry and just progress, you know, month over month is really uh, almost breathtaking to kind of stand back and watch an idea come to germinate and come to fruition. It's great to have it here in the state of Utah. It's great to have it anchored together with a very progressive and innovative uh, university president who sees that vision as well, to Ryan's point. And, you know, if that's been the case since the launch 10 months ago, what can you anticipate in five years, Francis? Well, if Ryan and team and industry and the leadership at the University of Utah continue to double down. And if there's truly access to the resources to allow that growth to continue, you know, it kind of sky's the limit on what the center can help create. I, I mean, I look forward to coming back, having conversations like this five years from now and talking about real impact companies that have gone on to make very meaningful impact that were incubated in the center, yeah, students who graduated with degrees in financial technology that are in leading positions, you know, in the uh, financial technology sector, and just really all the, the potential national and global impact that this can have. You know, and that's not to say anything about the impact to the state of Utah and the technology ecosystem here. They have a lot of support from the governor and, and his team and the city, Salt Lake City, and the mayor and her team and, you know, across the state. So I would just say there's no reason why it can't be super successful. Well, I think it sounds like there are really exciting, impactful things ahead. And I also look forward to a return conversation a few years down the road to see all of the great things that have happened as a result of these efforts. I'm so grateful to you, Ryan and Steve, for joining me here today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eccles Business Buzz podcast. We'll be back next week with another great conversation about economic equality and inclusion. So be sure to subscribe to Eccles Business Buzz wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss it. And if you're enjoying the season so far, you can leave us a rating and a review too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Eccles Alumni for all the latest news from your Eccles Alumni Network. Until next time, Eccles Business Buzz is a production of the David Eccles School of Business and is produced by University FM.